0: Book Two, Chapter One, Part Two of *The Octopus* by Frank Norris. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. During the time the cases were on trial at Visalia, S. Behrman was much in evidence in and about the courts. The trial itself, after tedious preliminaries, was brief. The ranchers lost. The test cases were immediately carried up to the United States Circuit Court in San Francisco. At the moment the decision of this court was pending. "'Why, this is news!' exclaimed Lyman in response to the governor's announcement. "'I did not expect them to be so prompt. "'I was in court only last week, and there seemed to be no end of business ahead. "'I suppose you are very anxious.' Magnus nodded. He had seated himself in one of Lyman's deep chairs, his grey top hat with its wide brim on the floor beside him. His coat of black broadcloth that had been tightly packed in his valise was yet wrinkled and creased. His trousers were strapped under his high boots. As he spoke, he stroked the bridge of his hawk-like nose with his bent forefinger. Leaning back in his chair, he watched his two sons with secret delight. To his eye, both were perfect specimens of their class, intelligent, well-looking, resourceful. He was intensely proud of them. He was never happier, never more nearly jovial, never more erect, more military, more alert and buoyant than when in the company of his two sons. He honestly believed that no finer examples of young manhood existed throughout the entire nation. "'I think we should win in this court,' Harron observed, watching the bubbles break in his glass. "'The investigation has been much more complete than in the Visalia trial.' our case this time is too good it has made too much talk the court would not dare render a decision for the railroad why there is the agreement in black and white on the circulars the railroad issued how can one get around those well well we shall know in a few hours now remarked magnus oh exclaimed lyman surprised it is for this morning then why aren't you at the court "'It seems undignified, boy,' answered the governor. "'We shall know soon enough.' "'Good God!' exclaimed Harran abruptly, "'when I think of what is involved. "'Why, Lyman, it's our home, the ranch house itself, "'nearly all Los Muertos, practically our whole fortune. "'And just now, when there is promise of an enormous crop of wheat, "'and it is not only us, "'there are over half a million acres of the San Joaquin involved.' In some cases of the smaller ranches, it is the confiscation of the whole of the rancher's land. If this thing goes through, it will absolutely beggar nearly a hundred men. Broderson wouldn't have a thousand acres to his name. Why, it's monstrous. "'But the corporations offered to lease these lands,' remarked Lyman. "'Are any of the ranchers taking up that offer, or are any of them buying outright?' "'Buying? At the new figure?' exclaimed Harran. At twenty and thirty an acre? Why, there's not one in ten that can. They are land poor. And as for leasing, leasing land they virtually own. No, there's precious few are doing that, thank God. That would be acknowledging the railroad's ownership right away, forfeiting their rights for good. None of the leaguers are doing it, I know. That would be the rankest treachery. He paused for a moment, drinking the rest of the mineral water, then, interrupting Lyman, who was about to speak to Presley, drawing him into the conversation through politeness, said, "'Matters are just romping right along to a crisis these days. It's a make or break for the wheat growers of the state now, no mistake. Here are the land cases and the new grain tariff drawing to a head at about the same time. If we win our land cases, there's your freight rates to be applied and then all is beer and skittles. Won't the San Joaquin go wild if we pull it off? And I believe we will. how we wheat growers are exploited and trapped and deceived at every turn, observed Magnus sadly. The courts, the capitalists, the railroads, each of them in turn hoodwinks us into some new and wonderful scheme only to betray us in the end. Well, he added, turning to Lyman, "'One thing at least we can depend on. We will cut their grain rates for them, hm, Lyman?' Lyman crossed his legs and settled himself in his office chair. "'I have wanted to have a talk with you about that, sir,' he said. "'Yes, we will cut the rates, and average ten per cent cut throughout the state as we are pledged. But I am going to warn you, Governor, and you, Harran." Don't expect too much at first. The man who, even after twenty years' training in the operation of railroads, can draw an equitable, smoothly working schedule of freight rates between shipping point and Common Point is capable of governing the United States. What with main lines and leased lines and points of transfer and the laws governing common carriers and the rulings of the Interstate Commerce Commission, the whole matter has become so confused that Vanderbilt himself couldn't straighten it out. And how can it be expected that railroad commissioners who are chosen? Well, let's be frank, as ours was, for instance, from out of a number of men who don't know the difference between a switching charge and a differential rate, are going to regulate the whole business in six months' time. Cut rates, yes, any fool can do that. Any fool can write one dollar instead of two. But if you cut too low, by a fraction of one percent, And if the railroad can get out an injunction, tie you up, and show that your new rate prevents the road being operated at a profit, how are you any better off? "'Your consciousness does you credit, Larman,' said the governor. "'I respect you for it, my son. I know you will be fair to the railroad. That is all we want. Fairness to the corporation is fairness to the farmer, and we won't expect you to readjust the whole matter out of hand.' "'Take your time. We can afford to wait. And suppose the next commission is a railroad board and reverses all our figures.' The one-time Mining King, the most redoubtable poker player in Calaveras County, permitted himself a momentary twinkle of his eyes. "'By then it will be too late. We will, all of us, have made our fortunes by then.' The remark left Presley astonished out of all measure. He could never accustom himself to these strange lapses in the governor's character. Magnus was by nature a public man, judicious, deliberate, standing firm for principle, yet upon rare occasion, by some such remark as this, he would betray the presence of a sub-nature of recklessness, inconsistent, all at variance with his creeds and tenets. At the very bottom, when all was said and done, Magnus remained the forty-niner. Deep down in his heart the spirit of the adventurer yet persisted. We will all of us have made our fortunes by then. That was it precisely. After us the deluge. For all his public spirit, for all his championship of justice and truth, his respect for law, Magnus remained the gambler, willing to play for colossal stakes, to hazard a fortune on the chance of winning a million it was the true california spirit that found expression through him the spirit of the west unwilling to occupy itself with details refusing to wait to be patient to achieve by legitimate plodding the miner's instinct of wealth acquired in a single night prevailed in spite of all it was in this frame of mind that magnus and the multitude of other ranchers of whom he was a type farmed their ranches they had no love for their land they were not attached to the soil they worked their ranches as a quarter of a century before they had worked their mines to husband the resources of their marvelous san joaquin they considered niggardly, petty hebraic to get all there was out of the land to squeeze it dry to exhaust it seemed their policy when at last the land worn out would refuse to yield they would invest their money in something else by then they would all have made fortunes They did not care. After us, the deluge." Lyman, however, was obviously uneasy, willing to change the subject. He rose to his feet, pulling down his cuffs. "'By the way,' he observed, "'I want you three to lunch with me today at my club. It is close by. You can wait there for news of the court's decision as well as anywhere else, and I should like to show you the place. I have just joined.' At the club, when the four men were seated at a small table in the round window of the main room, Lyman's popularity with all classes was very apparent. Hardly a man entered that did not call out a salutation to him, some even coming over to shake his hand. He seemed to be every man's friend, and to all he seemed equally genial. His affability, even to those whom he disliked, was unfailing. "'See that fellow yonder?' he said to magnus indicating a certain middle-aged man flamboyantly dressed who wore his hair long who was afflicted with sore eyes and the collar of whose velvet coat was sprinkled with dandruff that's hartrath the artist a man absolutely devoid of even the commonest decency how he got in here is a mystery to me yet when this hartrath came across to say how do you do to lyman lyman was as eager in his cordiality as his warmest friend could have expected. "'Why the devil are you so chummy with him, then?' observed harran when Hartrath had gone away. Lyman's explanation was vague. The truth of the matter was that Magnus's oldest son was consumed by inordinate ambition. Political preferment was his dream, and to the realization of this dream popularity was an essential. Every man who could vote, blackguard or gentleman, was to be conciliated if possible. He made it his study to become known throughout the entire community, to put influential men under obligations to himself. He never forgot a name or a face. With everybody he was the hail fellow well met. His ambition was not trivial. In his disregard for small things he resembled his father. Municipal office had no attraction for him. His goal was higher. He had planned his life twenty years ahead, already sheriff's attorney, assistant district attorney and railroad commissioner. He could, if he desired, attain the office of district attorney itself. Just now it was a question with him whether or not it would be politic to fill this office. Would it advance or sidetrack him in the career he had outlined for himself? Lyman wanted to be something better than district attorney, better than mayor, than state senator, or even than member of the United States Congress. He wanted to be, in fact, what his father was, only in name, to succeed where Magnus had failed. He wanted to be governor of the state. He had put his teeth together and deaf to all other considerations, blind to all other issues. He worked with the infinite slowness, the unshakable tenacity of the coral insect to this one end. After luncheon was over Lyman ordered cigars and liqueurs, and with the three others returned to the main room of the club. However, their former place in the round window was occupied. A middle-aged man, with iron-grey hair and mustache, who wore a frock coat and a white waistcoat, and in some indefinable manner suggested a retired naval officer, was sitting at their table smoking a long, thin cigar. At sight of him, Presley became animated. He uttered a mild exclamation. Why, isn't that Mr. Cedarquist? Cedarquist? repeated Lyman Derrick. I know him well. Yes, of course it is, he continued. Governor, you must uh, know him. He is one of our representative men. You uh, would enjoy talking to him. He was the head of the big Atlas Ironworks. They have shut down recently, you know. Not failed exactly, but just ceasing to be a paying investment, and Cedarquist closed them out. He has other interests, though. He's a rich man, a capitalist. Lyman brought the group up to the gentleman in question and introduced them. Mr. Magnus Derrick, of course, observed Cedarquist as he took the governor's hand. I've known you by repute for some time, sir. This is a great pleasure, I assure you. Then turning to Presley he added, Hello, praise my boy, how is the, great, the very great poem getting on? It's not getting on at all, sir, answered Presley in some embarrassment as they all sat down. In fact I've about given up the idea. There's so much interest in what you might call living issues down at Los Muertos now that I'm getting further and further from it every day. I should say as much, remarked the manufacturer, turning toward Magnus i'm watching your fight with shelgrim mr derrick uh, with every degree of interest he raised his drink of whiskey and soda here's success to you as he replaced his glass the artist Hartrath joined the group uninvited as a pretext he engaged lyman in conversation lyman he believed was a man with pull at the city hall in connection with a projected million-dollar fair and flower festival which at that moment was the talk of the city, certain statues were to be erected, and Hartrath bespoke Lyman's influence to further the pretensions of a sculptor friend of his who wished to be art director of the affair. In the matter of this fair and flower festival, Hartrath was not lacking in enthusiasm. He addressed the others with extravagant gestures, blinking his inflamed eyelids. "'A million dollars!' he exclaimed. "'Hey, think of that. Why, do you know that we have five hundred thousand practically pledged already? (laughs) Talk about public spirit, gentlemen. This is the most public-spirited city on the continent, and the money is not thrown away. We will have eastern visitors here by the thousands, capitalists, men with money to invest. The million we spend on our fare will be money in our pockets. ah! You should see how the women of this city are taking hold of the matter. They're, they're giving all kinds of little entertainments, teas, uh, old-time singing schools, amateur theatricals, gingerbread fates, uh, all for the benefit of the fund. And the businessmen, too, pouring out their money like water. It is splendid, it is splendid to see a community so patriotic. The manufacturer, Cedarquist, fixed the artist with a glance of melancholy interest. how much he remarked will they contribute your gingerbread women and public-spirited capitalists toward the blowing up of the ruins of the atlas ironworks blowing up i I don't understand murmured the artist surprised when you get your eastern capitalists out here with your million-dollar fare continued cedarquist you don't propose, do you to let them see a million-dollar iron foundry standing idle because of the indifference of San Francisco business men? They might ask a pertinent questions to your capitalists, and we should have to answer that our business men prefer to invest their money in corner lots and government bonds rather than to back up a legitimate industrial enterprise. We don't want fairs, we want active furnaces. We don't want public statues and fountains and park extensions and gingerbread fates. We want business enterprise. Isn't it like us? Isn't it like us? He exclaimed sadly. What a melancholy comment. Eh, San Francisco. It is not a city. It is a a midway plaisance. California likes to be fooled. "'Do you suppose Shelgrim could convert the whole San Joaquin Valley "'into his backyard otherwise?' "'Indifference to public affairs, absolutely indifference. "'It stamps us all. "'Our state is the very paradise of fake ears, "'you and your million-dollar fare.' "'He turned to Hartrath with a quiet smile. "'It is just such men as you, Mr. Hartrath, "'that are the ruin of us.' You organize a sham of tinsel and pasteboard, put on fool's cap and bells, beat a gong at a street corner, and the crowd cheers you and drops nickels into your hat. Your gingerbread fate. Yes, I saw it in full blast the other night on the grounds of one of your women's places on Sutter Street. I was on my way home from the last board meeting of the Atlas Company. A gingerbread fate, my God! and the atlas plant shutting down for want of financial backing a million dollars spent to attract the eastern investor in order to show him in an abandoned rolling mill wherein the only activity is the sale of remnant material and scrap metal lyman however interfered the situation was becoming strained he tried to conciliate the three men the artist the manufacturer and the farmer the warring elements but Hartrath, unwilling to face the enmity that he felt accumulating against him, took himself away. A picture of his, a study of the Contracosta foothills, was to be raffled in the club rooms for the benefit of the fair. He himself was in charge of the matter. He disappeared. End of Book Two, Chapter One, Part Two